0: It sounds like you value owning flaws or owning just truth, really, because sometimes, you know, the truth hurts. There's that saying, right? And uh, obviously being honest isn't being vulnerable, but being overly honest can be seen as a vulnerability, but you sort of capitalize on being overly honest because that's, you can't make excuses for truth. Truth is truth.
1: Yeah. I think that the truth is the first step towards fixing something. So yeah, some things aren't Great aren't where they should be. Um, take the, the speed of GitLab.com. We want that speed to be higher. But you could argue with the benchmarks because they're, they're never perfect and everything else. But if we do that, we kind of put energy in that instead of energy in actually fixing it. And take the maturity of certain parts of the application. Like by having that page out there, it motivates our team to increase that maturity and make sure that things become better. If you're if you're in denial about things as an organization, it makes it really hard to remedy the underlying costs because you're pretending there's nothing wrong.
0: Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at rollbar.com and we're hosted on Linode Cloud Servers at the Linode.com changelog. This episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean's developer cloud makes it simple to launch in the cloud and scale up as you grow. They have an intuitive control panel, predictable pricing, team accounts, worldwide availability with a 99.99 uptime SLA and 24-7, 365 world-class support to back that up. DigitalOcean makes it easy to deploy, scale, store, secure, and monitor your cloud environments. Head to do.co slash changelog to get started with a $100 credit. Again, do.co. Slash changelog. From Changelog Media, this is Founders Talk, one on one conversation with founders, CEOs, and makers about their journey, lessons learned, and the struggles they go through to build and run their business. I'm Adam Stagoviak, host of this show and editor in chief of changelog.com. Sitsa Brandage is the co founder and CEO of GitLab, an all remote company and complete DevOps platform. As a company, they have their eyes set on taking the company public, and they're very outspoken about their culture, their open handbook, and how they work as an all-remote company. But I've always been curious about where Sid came from. Where did he grow up? What did he study? Was he any good at school? So that's where we started. Sid, what kind of person were you before (laughs) GitLab?
1: Still the same, hopefully. Uh, I was uh, born and raised in the Netherlands. Um, I'm the oldest of four siblings. Yeah, parents are still here, still together. I did well at school. Well, I did well uh, learning-wise. I was uh, teased a lot when I was uh, younger. And uh, what I studied is uh, univ- I went to university. I was really good at physics in high school, so I figured I'd study that. I also enjoyed it. But it turns out that physics in university is a lot of math, which wasn't something I was particularly Good at or particularly liked. So I Mm. switched to management science, which is kind of a combination of an MBA and uh, a taste of all the different engineering disciplines, which was super fun to do. In hindsight, I should have uh, learned how to program. I liked what I did on the site as well. Even the first year of university, I saw this ad on the local marketplace for an infrared receiver. So you could skip to the next MP. Three uh, track. I'm like, that's amazing. So I ordered one and I checked out the website, which was on GeoCities, which kind of dates me.
0: Oh yeah. Love GeoCities.
1: Yeah. And it was open source like uh, already at that time, the the software, but also the hardware to, to run the device. And there was a big banner on the site that said, I'm not selling these. I'm like, huh? That's weird. He is selling them. And I figured out he didn't want to deal with kind of sending individual orders across the ocean. So that was my first business. I I bought them from the person making it. I was a PhD student and I started selling them. I asked people to send me cash with some cardboard behind it so you could less easily spot it. And uh, that's how I got in business. It was fun. We did that for a couple of years. After graduating, I did an internship at IBM, the IBM Extreme Blue program. That was super fun. We got to uh, work on a conversation pot and uh, after that I had the option to get a job there permanently and I was looking at strategy consulting but I couldn't stop thinking about submarines because my wife and I went to a boat fair and we saw a submarine there and I kept calling the the owner the investor like to hire me he he, there was nobody on the payroll there was just an inventor and an investor and uh, it got Down to the wire, because I had a job offer in hand, I had to make a decision and he decided to offer me a job, but he asked what I wanted to earn and I said something completely reasonable. And he proceeded to offer me the salary he thought was reasonable, but that was reasonable 15 years ago. So I was finally poor after graduating. I always figured I'd be the poorest during my student days, but I had to move in back with my parents. Lived in their attic while making the life support system for the submarine. Luckily, uh, nowadays, it's a lot more professional at u Boat Works, but they, uh, they're they still around, and they make the most submarines in the world. That's kind of my story growing up.
0: Interesting. Well, let's backtrack a little bit. I got a couple of questions. I want to interrupt you because I love hearing these kinds of stories of like, where people come from, you know, who they are today. Sure, definitely. You're still the same Sid, right? There's, there's not much changed a bunch except for maybe the external perception of who you are, what you're building. And there's a lot of assumptions that can come from that and in many ways what I try to do with this show is sort of demystify people like you to some degree because to me you're amazing like you've done some really cool stuff at GitLab we'll get into that of course but I like to know where you came from to sort of like understand the building blocks of how you got to the mindset that is required to be who you are today to do what you've done to lead a company like you have done and you mentioned and I don't want to go into this too deeply unless you want to but you mentioned being teased yeah, How did that affect you when you were younger? It was a, it it hard for you to make friends? Did, were you a loner?
1: Yeah, I was a loner. It was hard to make friends. I struggled with finding joy in the social processes and I wasn't good at it. I didn't particularly like it. And I uh, stood out and I um, figured I'd have to befriend some people. I befriended people at the bottom of the social ladder (laughs) who turned on me and started teasing me instead so I think it what it it gives you being teased is that you tend to be a bit less sensitive to social signals and I think that from time to time served me uh, well as an entrepreneur where you go against kind of common wisdom from time to time. Most of the time you go with common wisdom. One of our subvalues at GitLab is boring solutions. We don't try to reinvent the wheel. And sometimes you have to do something that doesn't make sense to the rest of the world. Mm. And uh, that doesn't mean you're always right. I'm I'm still the same person that had a failed startup, Uh, wasn't successful. So I'm not any smarter than when I had that failed startup. But if you keep... Trying long enough, uh, at some point, uh, hopefully you you get lucky. And with GitLab, we got lucky. And I learned to kind of follow when there's a conflict between what the world says and what you think yourself. I'm I'm able to depend a bit more on what I think myself. And I think that's sometimes uh, really handy.
0: See, that's what I mean by these details is the way your perspective of that time in your life and how that sort of shaped you to be resilient as an entrepreneur, Right to sort of go against, go against common wisdom, like to me, that's that's awesome. And there's someone out there that was teased young in their life, and you reminded them of that, and you sort of gave them a new perspective on how you can sort of change that perspective on that moment in your life, and use it towards a future that's that's more joyful, you know, more joy.
1: I like that. In high school, if you stand out and if you're different, it's it's a problem. And later in life is an asset to the diversity of thinking and, and perspectives.
0: I might paraphrase a little bit because I didn't watch the full video, but I, I've got it in my list to check out. But I, I watched Tim Ferriss from time to time because I think he's a pretty wise fella. And he was talking about being a specialist or being a generalist. And he said the idea is to be a Again, paraphrasing, what I grokked from it most was that if you're a generalist, you could be a specialist with all of your generalist skills. And so it's kind of like that, like you use a lot of what you learn throughout your life to get to where you are, but then use all those skills you've learned all your life in that position. You know, you don't just master one skill or one thing and become CEO of GitLab, right? You had to do several things throughout your life, and I'm sure that you still use a lot of your experiences, a lot of your skills, a lot of the patience that you've learned over your life to be and to do what you
1: do. Yeah, I, I like how what you what you learn in life, like I worked at a lot of organizations where I saw some things going really well and some things going not so well. And I, I love how uh, when you start your own business, you get to do things differently. And yeah. I don't think one organization is necessarily better than another, just different. And I like how GitLab, we optimize for speed of decision making. So I've I've seen a lot of organizations where things have to fly under the radar because as as soon as you uh, ask people for input, you owe them kind of involvement in making, shaping the final decision. So you have initiatives flying under the radar for a long time because... Mm -hmm. As soon as you pop up, you want to get to a conclusion quickly, otherwise you attach so many people that you become paralyzed uh, in the decision-making process. And that's been something we're trying to avoid at GitLab, like, no, you sh- you share your decision openly so you can get more input and more data, but only the directly responsible individual has to decide, and and you don't owe everyone an explanation, you don't owe everyone a joint decision. And. There's many examples like that where we've we've tried to learn from what you've seen in your life before and, and try to improve upon it. It doesn't always work, but and maybe and it's not an ultimate solution, but it's fun to try something different and to articulate why and 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 try to add something to the world.
0: Would you say that some of your values, if not all your values, capitalize on vulnerability? Because. I would want to connect the dots, but you've had some vulnerability younger in your life and that's a value I see being portrayed. Like l- leveraging your vulnerability is pretty interesting because it l- it lets you be transparent. Transparency is vulnerability to some degree or can be perceived in that in that case.
1: Yeah, I think that what we say is that allows us to do iteration and transparency some of our most important values is kind of a low level of shame like we're not afraid of sharing that something isn't perfect yet, which is necessary for iteration. Like if you want to get something done quickly, it's not going to be perfect and you got to live with like, Hey, it's, you could do better work, but you don't have the time to do it. And, uh, I think we as a company try to have the confidence that, like, okay, this isn't done yet. One of the Web pages I'm proudest of at GitLab is our uh, maturity page, which shows for every part of the product how good it is. And by being frank about that, we can be open and we can iterate, and we we give ourselves room to ship something that isn't perfect because we're not pretending it's perfect. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's really really important. And that comes from the you had earlier in life, like. I sent the infrared receivers and I sent them by postal mail and most of the time they would arrive in a week, sometimes in two weeks and sometimes in three weeks. It was just all over the place and we promised to ship them in two weeks, but there was this like 5% of customers where it would arrive late. To this day, I, I kind of regret not being open and just communicating, giving the range to people. Instead, pretending something that that isn't isn't completely true. So that's what we try to do. It sounds like you
0: value owning flaws or owning just truth, really. Because sometimes you know the truth hurts. There's that saying, right? And uh, obviously, being honest isn't being vulnerable. But being overly honest can be seen as a vulnerability. But you sort of capitalize on being overly honest because that's you can't make excuses for truth. Truth is truth.
1: Yeah, I think that. The truth is the first step towards fisk- fixing something. So yeah, some things aren't great, aren't where they should be. Um, take the the speed of GitLab.com. We want that speed to be higher. But you could argue with the benchmarks because they're, they're never perfect and everything else. But if we do that, we kind of put energy in that instead of energy in actually fixing it. And take the maturity of certain parts of the application, like by having that page out there, it motivates our team to increase that maturity and make sure that things become better. If you're if you're in denial about things as an organization, it makes it really hard to remedy the underlying cause because you're pretending there's nothing wrong. Well
0: said. You you mentioned earlier on you were interested in physics. It seems like you were also interested in psychology. Did you take any read any books in particular? Any classes? Any any studies at all into psychology to sort of understand vulnerability, shame, you know, these kinds of things.
1: I think that every human is interested in psychology. Um, one of my favorite Wikipedia pages is about common misperceptions. And what I also like is mental models of like, how do you view the the world? Gabriel uh, Weinberg of DuckDuckGo has a great blog post, and he even wrote a book about it, uh, mental models, he finds uh, repeatedly useful. I mean, that's just uh, very interesting to, to kind of have all those worldviews kind of exist at the same time. Mm. Be aware of all these different ways to view the same facts and figures.
0: Couldn't help, but uh, quickly Google DuckDuckGo mental models and find Gabriel's blog post, and I was caught skimming that for just a second skate to where the puck is going, right? I mean, that's, a, that's an ism, but it's definitely a concept you use to explain things, to explain how to do things in business even, right? You, you mentioned that before, going against the common wisdom. That's a mental model.
1: Yeah, but there's, there's so many, like uh, core competencies, conspicuous consumption, price elasticity, like it, it, the list goes on and on. And I'm actually reading the blog post now during my uh, exit removal classes and uh, it's been fun to kind of go over them and many mm-hmm. i many i already know but there's a, there's a lot of new ones and it's kind of fun to to see all these uh, ways of viewing that people invented over time
0: you know I, I got into you said every human um is to some degree interested in psychology i could agree with that maybe not even self admitted but you know not everybody wants to admit that but Uh, I kind of found some appreciation for it when I was studying behavioral economics. And I was just trying to find on, just got really interested. I'm a curious person. I got curious about how people make financial decisions. The idea of sunk cost bias, for example, when you continue through something, even though you know you've invested, I'm paraphrasing the, the behavior, but basically, you know, you keep going even though you've, put a lot of money in you know it's a losing game here mm-hmm. but yet you continue you persevere sometimes to your detriment to me that's what got me interested in psychology and we started a show called brain science we actually talked about recently uh, not mental models but mental frameworks which i believe are pretty much synonymous but our framing of it was mental frameworks how you view the world how you see things how you model what's in your brain what's how you perceive the world and continue on but it's a fun show
1: And it helps you. Like, for example, there's loss aversion. Mm -hmm. We count a dollar lost. We experience is much more painful than a dollar gained. So if you know that, how suddenly you know why we do insurance. Like insurance is overhead. We might as well just say for for everything but the largest expenses that you really can not bankroll yourself. But it doesn't make sense to insure something that's uh, something you can afford out of pocket. That's right. But it makes sense if you view it from the perspective of loss aversion, because you're okay with paying for insurance. You're not okay with taking a some, uh, cash loss on, on things. So I think it's really interesting and it's a great way to understand yourself and, and the rest of the world.
0: Okay. Let's dig deep into, say, the early days of GitLab. And let's go back as far as you want to. But when I recall the earliest days, now I've been around for, a, I would say, a while. Uh, Just to sort of preface it, we began our primary show called The Change Law back in 2009, November 2009. So we just last year celebrated our 10th anniversary, which was awesome. And we since spawned a full-on network of developer podcasts that uh, we really love. And we've been doing this for about 10 years now. So we've been paying attention to this space very closely, very, very closely. And the early days, I can recall, was this perception that, you know, GitHub was really popular, and then we see GitLab, and it's an open-source version of it. Change a few letters, very similar. Take us back to the earliest days of GitLab that you can recall. Why did you get involved? What was it for you? You know, why were you even concerned or involved in these problems that it solves?
1: Yeah, so GitLab was created by my uh, co-founder, Dimitri, and he created it because he needed it he had two things he wanted to improve. He wanted running water and he wanted better collaboration tools at work. And he started with uh, uh, the latter. And uh, when he created GitLab, it's, it was to solve his own need, but he also open sourced it. And within a year, he got 300 people contributing back to it. And that's, that's when I saw it on Hacker News. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. I recently became a, a developer. I became a developer later in life and I was surprised that all the tools I used were open source. I I was a Ruby on Rails developer and like it's amazing what ecosystem you get with Ruby on Rails and yeah. all of that came for free. Except there was GitHub and it was um, it was not free and it was not open source. And it struck me as very ironic that that Thing you collaborate with is not something you can contribute back to. Yeah. So when I saw GitLab, I thought that makes a ton of sense. This, these collaboration tools should be open source. Mm-hmm. And I looked into it. I opened up the code base and the code base was pristine. It was really, really high quality, which is remarkable. Um, most of the time, you either have uh, the founder doing it in their spare time, and uh, see might create something that want to test a new technology or something like that. And, and you get kind of an, a non idiomatic thing where, where they took this pattern and kind of overused it a bit because, uh, that was what they were doing at the time, but that wasn't the case. It was really beautiful and idiomatic rails and also all the contributions from those 300 people were integrated perfectly. So I thought, wow, that's, that's a really good start. Um, and I looked at what was missing what was missing was you couldn't try out GitLab you had to install it before even giving it a spin so that's why I created GitLab.com so it would be software as a service I was aware of the success of Salesforce SaaS was the future I didn't create it yet I just made a landing page allowed you to sign up and posted that to Hacker News and uh when that trended, I had a couple of hundred people that were interested and, and that's, that's how I got started. Interesting. I never heard the
0: story of how it actually began that way. I mean, it's, uh, Dimitri beginning and even have a pristine co base. you're right. Uh, usually it's, uh, somebody tinkering with a new thing, you know, an interest and the co base is sort of, as you said, not, not a and not, uh, not the best patterns, not the best examples of the code or the ex- best examples of the framework, for example, and to, to go that route. Given the timing of GitLab, GitHub, what do you say to people? You know, especially those who were there in the early days that that look at, you know, maybe the interface and the name and the mascot, the similarities. What do you say to them when they say, "Were you just simply a copy and paste of GitHub?" What do you say to them?
1: So. GitHub and GitLab share a common ancestor in GitWeb. So GitWeb is the interface that came with Git out of the box. It allowed you to run a simple server. So in my mind, I don't know how the name GitHub came about, but I can imagine that it was inspired by GitWeb. Now, the project already had a name when I met it. And we, uh, if you change it, you change people's. URLs and download directories and the the whole thing. So I think especially for software and name change is very, very disruptive. So we never changed it.
0: All right, I got a question for you. Are you curious? Because if you're curious, I have a podcast recommendation for you. As you may know, that's one of the best ways to learn about new podcasts is by recommendation. And I might be biased towards this show because... I'm a host of this show, but we produce a show called Brain Science. It's for the curious. It's exploring the human brain to better understand behavior change, have a formation, mental health, and what it means to be human. Here's a preview of episode 20 titled Navigating Perfectionism. It's not advocating don't seek perfectionism, don't seek being perfect. It's the opposite of that, which is, you know, where do you find your worth? Maybe even beyond that, how can you be more secure in who you are. You said predominant. What if you can flip that and say well the majority of my self-worth is derived from what I perceive as my self-worth versus allowing others right. to speak into that and change it.
2: Yeah, look, everybody is wholly entitled to their own opinion of what they like and what they think is good enough or acceptable, but you know, we're we're all mm-hmm. different. Nobody starts really in the same place. I mean, genes play a role, environment plays a role, opportunities. Like there's so many things that each individual, you know, comes to the plate with. So it is a decoupling of saying, I can't solely base my self-perception on the feedback from one, just anyone. And two, how do I, to some degree, create a filter around the feedback I do get From other people. Like, I always give the analogy, not that I can relate with this in any way, but if I were in the grocery store checkout line and the cashier told me about how I was doing as a mom because my kids were losing their cool as toddlers Mm -hmm. for whatever reason, it's not to say, you know, she couldn't give me feedback, he or she Give me feedback about how I'm doing as a mom because my kids are melting down and maybe you know it's irritating Mm -hmm. or whatever, or I'm not being the sort of meeting the expectation of parenting at that moment. But does this person Mm. know me?
0: All right, to keep listening, head to changelaw.com slash brain science slash twenty. That will take you to the episode titled Navigating Perfectionism, where we dig deep into different aspects of perfectionism, how it's adaptive, how it works, and how it just doesn't work at all. Again, changelaw.com slash science slash 20 or search for brain science in your favorite podcast app and subscribe. We'd love to have you as a listener. Let's talk about uh, where you're going. So, if I understand, let's let's fast forward quite a bit just to sort of tease where we're heading. Uh, you're planning to IPO this year, November, if I understand correctly. Is that right?
1: Yeah, that that's what we have set as a goal in 2015. Uh, I don't think it's likely we'll uh, we'll make that date in November, but we're we're getting pretty close. Uh, we're over 100 million dollars of revenue. Uh, We're still growing at a healthy clip. We're unlikely to uh, go public uh, end of this year, but it's getting really close. And Mm. that's, we're now five years after taking our first external dollar. So that's been an amazingly fast trajectory.
0: Yes. Over 400 million currently raised, I believe, if I got my numbers correctly. Current valuation roughly two point seven five billion, which is what I want to go into. That is, is this you know, GitHub was acquired a couple of years back for seven and a half billion. They were valued at the time for two billion. Their valuation you're you're valued now over what they were valued at then. And I'm just curious when you choose to go like so, their route was a private acquisition rather than going IPO rather than going public. What is it that makes you choose that route for your company?
1: yeah well, first of all, it's, it's not always your decision. like the majority of the company is, is owned by uh, investors. It's not my decision. it's a joint decision with the investors and if someone came about tomorrow and offers something that's way more than we ever expected uh, we can get to in the, in the future, then, then you'll think you will sell. The reason that we have the ambition to become a public company is because it would allow us to stay independent and you stay independent. It's more likely that you'll be a good steward of the open source project, and that will be able to kind of preserve and further improve our values and the way we live them. That's important to us. So going public would be a good way to to maximize the chances of achieving that.
0: Hmm. Well, also given the fact that you're pretty focused on being transparent, which is. I guess, to some degree, an oddity for a, a public company. Now, maybe public companies, they have to be, by regulation, very transparent with, you know, their fiscal reports and things like that. But you're already sort of practicing all the practices that you would need to master as a public company currently.
1: Yeah, well, yes and no. It's ironic that it's in the name public company. But apart from the things that they're forced to disclose, they tend to disclose very little outside of that. Yes. If we go public, we'd probably be the most transparent public company. And it'd be fun to try that and to kind of push the envelope of what we're disclosing. The more you disclose, the more uh, things people have to sue you over and to to cause problems. So it'd be interesting to see how we manage to stay and increase our transparency as we uh, become a public company, yeah
0: there's a lot of risk and even doing interviews like this, once you go public, you have to be very careful with what you say to someone like me, even though I'm not a journalist, I'm just a podcaster, but you know it's it's written it's recorded it's in history it's it's stuck, and so you have to be very careful once you're at that stage of what yeah. you say could it' cause it could influence your stock price, it could influence selling or buying, it could influence, you know, a lot of different things, your perception of the, of the business.
1: For sure. But there's kind of rules around that. And the, the rule for this is material information. So yeah. it's fine to talk about how GitLab started as a company, or it's not so great to say, oh yeah, we're over a hundred million in revenue. Actually, it's a hundred, let's do an imaginary number. It's a 650 billion today. Like wow, that was a material disclosure. You can't do that as a as a public company because right. this podcast is not a channel in which we regularly communicate information. And anyway, you and your editors would know it before the rest of the world, which is also not great. Yeah. But I think we can navigate that, and we'll see. Well, we now have over five thousand pages of our internal processes uh, that are open to the public, and uh, there's going to be some more disclaimers on there, mm-hmm. uh, uh, we'll see what we'll uh, be able to keep having. And it's it says on our transparency value that it's it's not going to be easy all the time. And we're going to have, like you're basically providing a ton of content for your future short sellers. Like short sellers, they short a stock and then make a case where it should be worth less. They're doing a useful job, but it's very annoying running a company having to deal with that. And now you're giving them a thousand times more things to kind of weave into their narrative that they'll be presenting. So yeah. that's going to be super interesting to see if we have the resiliency to, to deal with that as a company.
0: I believe in you. That's for sure. What I want to get into, you mentioned that it was not just your decision, but investors and others who make this decision. And I, I kind of want to really understand if GitHub can be acquired for that amount of money, at the same valuation and given the annoyances you mentioned that could happen as a public company and you know I suppose you can share what you'd like but I I would imagine you have at least some early offers or some indication of interest from people that would be willing to acquire GitLab or bring you onto like a Microsoft-esque a Goliath like Microsoft why go through the pain of being a you know an ipo company and the scrutiny when you can be the same company you are with no change whatsoever how do you factor that decision to continue to to go towards ipo versus a uh, an acquisition that kind of gives zero opportunity for disruption of culture
1: yeah well first of all a shout out to our investors uh, relation person uh, tony the speculating about becoming a public company itself is something that is regulated and the closer you are to becoming public the less you can do of it so the fact that we can talk about it now uh, is is only because we're a private company with no immediate plans to go public yeah. we don't necessarily kind of want to cash out the company the so-called exit i'd like to keep going i'm i'm having fun it's interesting i think we're adding something as a i think the, the people at GitLab are producing great work and the community is really helping the product become better at a very rapid pace. We got the 22nd, we we'll have GitLab 13 come out with all kinds of great uh, new features. The reason that we need to do something is that we raised money in 2015. As soon as you raise external money, they wanna get that back, hopefully more. And you need to get to a liquidity event. And yeah, the two options are uh, selling the company, Or going public. And selling the company, you need to have interest. The thing I can talk about is that in 2014, when GitLab was less than nine people and I was running it, I was living in the Netherlands, we never took an external dollar. We got an offer for $10 million to sell the company. And the company was owned completely by me and Dimitri at the time. And my accountant said, You should sell. You'll never have to work again. (laughs) And my response was like, I really like working. Yes. Of course, if you think it will be worth much less in the future, you should get out. But the most common reason to get out is it's draining. It's tiring. So that's uh, why we try to not get tired.
0: Yeah. Wouldn't you be able to stay, though? I mean, even if you got acquired, wouldn't you... I mean, you're the, you're the negotiator. You can negotiate your ability to remain as you are. Why would things have to change given an acquisition? Yeah. I mean, generally there's some change, but that doesn't have to change.
1: It changes over time. Uh, so there's a couple of factors. Like, who is the acquirer? Uh, some companies are better than that than others, I think. Uh, Microsoft has shown, for example, with LinkedIn, they can do a great job of of letting the, the company run by itself. It also changes over time. It tends to be straight after the acquisition. You still have a lot of control, and that dilutes over time. But most of the time when a company is acquired, there is a strategic benefit. Like the company is of more value combined with other things than before. For example, what you see with GitHub is that now like all kinds of Azure DevOps functionality like packages and code spaces is now branded as GitHub and shipped as part of the, the GitHub product. And that's, kind of, that's creating a synergy. Mm-hmm. And during the selling process, you probably make a plan for like what, what you're going to do, but you should expect that to continue. And you might not always agree with it. In the end, it's not your company anymore. Over time, there's going to be more and more things you have to do that you kind of don't agree with. So Mm -hmm. most founders end up leaving after a couple of two years or something like that.
0: So personally, you're saying that you like working, you want to keep working and any acquisition would possibly change that. Well, not just you I'm saying, but you know,
1: yeah. Well, first of all, like the, the decision, whether to uh, to sell or to get acquired, it's, it's not about me. Like there's, uh, a ton of investors, they have the majority of the company. There's also 1,200 team members. So it's not it's not so much about what I want. The only thing is, like, uh, nobody, if I want to stop working mm-hmm. on GitLab, that might be, there's not a super obvious successor. there's some really talented people that can run the company well. But sometimes that's a reason where the investors say, well, if the founder's no longer there, it's a good time to uh, to sell. Yeah. But whether we sell or not, it depends on what's best for everyone involved, both the shareholders as well as the shareholders that are also employees.
0: Let's dig into something that makes you quite unique. Uh, you're all remote. And in many cases, especially in today's climate of the world, there's a lot of press out there, a lot of interest in working from home, doing it well, uh, ways to work rem- remotely and From what I can understand, you've always been all remote. Is that correct? Always all remote?
1: Yeah. I think the only exception has been Y Combinator. We stayed in Mountain View for three months with the whole company. But other than that, we've never kind of congregated at an office.
0: So if you've always had this as a thing, how, how did you get to all remote? Like what made, was it just by accident and you stumbled into it and you started to Develop some values around it. And you're like, well, this really makes sense for us because of these reasons. I mean, how'd you get there? How'd you get all remote?
1: Yeah. It started with uh, me being in the Netherlands, Dimitri being in the Ukraine, and our first team member, Martin, being in uh, Serbia. So it was kind of, it wasn't practical to get together. And then mm-hmm. I hired a few people in the Netherlands and they came to my house. I had a spare desk for a couple of days. But after that, they... One day they just didn't show up but they were online so i'm like hmm, interesting they never asked permission but they just didn't see the use of commuting to my place every day when all we did was yeah. work online anyway and uh, after y combinator they told us that there's there's been very few companies that were all remote successfully so they advised us to to get an office and uh, especially for the non-engineering functions, centralized them at the office. But after we got an office, the kind of the the local people stopped showing up after a while. They came in kind of the same way as in the Netherlands. They came in for three days and then there was, they saw that it had little added value and they didn't ask for permission, but they just stopped showing up, but kept doing uh, their work. Mm, that's awesome. We're, we're kind of remote because there's just no added value in being in the office. So
0: they didn't ask for permission. That means that uh, you had a perspective of giving individuals an opportunity to make choices in their position that best suited them themselves as well as their position and the work they do. They didn't have to ask for permission because you already sort of gave them permission to make their own choices. It seems.
1: Never explicitly.
0: Right. Just through your demeanor. They never
1: asked me, but the other people were working remotes. I, yeah. I figured that they didn't think it was a a big deal.
0: At what point did you begin to sort of develop values around it? You, you got a lot of, like you mentioned, 5,000 pages of written material that des- describe and, de- and help people understand your culture as well as internals as eternals. So how did you get to this point where everything you were doing was documented?
1: Yeah, that was in... Uh, and Y Combinator, we kind of changed our ambition uh, before going to Y Combinator. We wanted in five years to be a company of like 50 people. And during Y Combinator, we changed our perspective. We want to be a company valued at at least a billion dollars, which kind of means at least a thousand people in, in five years. So then I was onboarding someone and I was like, Darn! I'll have to explain this again, again, and again, and again. Like I better start writing some things down, and uh, uh, it escalated from there. And I think every significant company has a knowledge system or something resembling our handbook, but most of the time it falls into disrepair. Like it's not updated anymore; it's stale. Uh, so one of the most important things we do is work handbook first. If you want to communicate a change, you should change the handbook and communicate the change you made to the handbook. You shouldn't use a presentation or an email or another medium to kind of communicate that change.
0: Hmm. That's interesting because that was my next question. It's like, how do you then sort of become handbook first? Well, that makes sense, right? So if you if you want to initiate change, it being in the handbook doesn't mean that it, it, it is change. It's sort of initiating change because you or others have an opportunity to iterate on that and contribute back to it and disagree or agree. Do you often yep. have fights to some degree or spats, however you want to describe them, on changes? Well, this, uh,
1: disagreements. Yeah, sure. Like yesterday, I uh, wanted to change something in our values. Uh, we have a value in transparency, like explain why. But we also have this mode in how we operate is that the the directly responsible individual doesn't have to kind of consult with everyone before making a decision. And it wasn't clear kind of what wins. Like, does the DRI have to explain themselves? And I'm I'm really afraid of uh, decisions flying under the radar because if people find out about the decision, you'll have to explain yourself. So I wrote up, like, no, no one's, owned a why, DRIs don't have to say why. And then uh, someone in the organization, uh, Emily Sherio, said, well, I I disagree with that. We called about it and she had some good points. So I asked her to close my suggestion and make one herself and then uh, we'll, I'll review that and, uh, I, I I assume it's going to be better than mine and we'll merge that instead.
0: There you go. How do you think your company has been better because of this? communication-wise, not just helping you to onboard. I mean, that was sort of a selfish, for good reasons, uh, initiative in it, you know, early on, but it's now blossomed into this highly communicable handbook that, one, clearly states to the outside world that has interest of working at, at GitLab the kind of company you are, the, the kind of ways you operate. But at the same time, it's highly communicable to the people inside to foster and develop and sort of in green and black and white in text your culture who you are how you operate
1: yeah i think externally it really helps people opt into the organization a lot of the people that ended up joining gitlab were people that saw the handbook and like yeah i'd like this way of working i bet there's also a ton of people that see our handbook and like don't like that way of working and never end up working at gitlab so I think that companies are gonna become more differentiated as remote working becomes more common. You don't have to appeal to all the people in your immediate area. If you can appeal to a small group of people, but all over the world, that is enough. So you can be much more opinionated as a company. Mm. I think internally, it causes us to be very intentional. Uh, For example, we're very intentional about informal communication. Uh, Being remote, you're kind of, you have to design informal communication. It doesn't happen at the water cooler because you don't have one, but you can still facilitate that. So we have the concept of coffee chats. You are scheduled with someone else once a week and you get to meet that person for 25 minutes. And it's like having that water cooler conversation, except it's like a random person in the company. So it could be from another country. It could be from another department. You don't just meet the people on the same floor. Mm -hmm. And I think intentionality is, on average, uh, a, a good thing. Uh, same same way with our values. We there's not just six words. There's a whole lot of context on what we exactly mean. And then there's fourteen ways in which we reinforce our values.
0: What are your values?
1: So the acronym we use is Credit, and it stands for collaboration, result, efficiency. Diversity, inclusion, and belonging, efficiency and transparency. Iteration. Yeah, for sure. Iteration is I think the value that is toughest at GitLab.
0: Yeah.
1: It's the value everyone coming in externally says, I love iteration. And then <laughs> internally we kind of we do it because it works really well, but right. we dread it because it's so hard to have this idea about the future and then have to break that up into smaller pieces. Gotcha.
0: How did you get there? I mean, sure, you got these six values, but like did they just develop over time? Did they naturally bubble up and you're know, like, well, these okay, these things seem to be common trends throughout our documentation throughout our the ways we present ourselves, the way we present you know new changes to our guidebook? Was it a committee decision? Was it you who did this?
1: yeah. I think early on, we took kind of the material we created and the kind of what was happening. And we said, okay, what are our values? And I, I think I took the lead in that. We had 13 values. And then I quizzed a few people, including myself. And no one could remember more than three of them. So there were a bit too too many, causing people not to know. And so I worked with my uh, CEO coach at the time, John Hamm, to cluster them. And so... We tried to cluster them, and we came up with these six overarching uh, values that I can now recite from memory, so it's getting a lot better. Yeah. And we checked them against the five dysfunctions that can happen in organizations and made sure we addressed those uh, five dysfunctions, and and those became our values. And I'm very proud. If you look at the bottom of the values page, you'll see an edit button. And if you click that and then click history, you'll find that, these are living and breathing values. Like they continually get refined and refreshed. It's not that the six big words change every uh, change frequently. We've had those for years, but we continually try to improve the explanation of them. And I mean, that's what's important. It has to be a living document.
0: Do you happen to know the five dysfunctions by memory?
1: <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs>
0: So I was curious about those because I like how you pair that up with these six core values against the, you know, it could be more dysfunctions, but five most common dysfunctions in organizations. And that's an interesting perspective to sort of like, you know, identify and capitalize on the opportunity to sort of establish, you know, these values. I don't know how to describe them besides the same values against the dysfunctions. Actually, I think the five dysfunctions is in your list here. So. I think it's absence of trust. This is based on your docs. So thank you docs. Yeah. Absence of trust, fear of conflict, lack of commitment, avoidance of accountability and inattention to results. Exactly. I don't know where that came from. There's a link to that too. Maybe that goes somewhere else. Wikipedia.
1: It's a book by Patrick. Uh, <laughs> there you
0: go. We'll put that in the show notes for everybody listening to. So you can find that, but that's awesome. I like that. I'm, I'm always curious how these things come about. And, you know, over time, organizations become the better document themselves. Some, as you said, they'll start these guides or these handbooks or, you know, some sort of knowledge base that becomes into disrepair, not looked at often. But it seems that you found a way to not only communicate in text that everybody can contribute to and edit and scrutinize how you operate, but you've been able to keep it alive. It's a living thing for your organization.
1: Yeah, and uh, it's remarkable. There's more updates to this than fit on one page in the in this month that we're currently in. So um, that's great to see. And actually, I think now we have 14 ways in which we reinforce our values. I think we're going to add another one because I think we just uh, launched the GitLab uh, songbook. So we'll have a a 15th way in which we reinforce our values.
0: Let's fine tune down to an execution. I'm not sure this where this might stem from, from a value, but it's definitely something I value that you've you've uh, shared with the world. We we put a post out there from you on changelog.com called Family and Friends First, Work Second. And it was an explanation by you saying why GitLab publicly shut down for one day. Now, this, I believe, was back on May 1st, if I got the date correctly. I yep. don't have a, I'm very but... Take us back to the Slack post on Friday, April seventeenth, where you shared sort of why give us the the behind the scenes of that of that post and and what family and friends first, work second means to you.
1: What it means to us is that we understand that work isn't the most important things in people's lives. And a lot of companies kind of I don't know, they, they make you pretend that it is. And I've always thought that was weird. Obviously, like family and friends come first. And if there's something uh, that you have to attend to, that is more important. And uh, we try to give people that space. And what we've noticed that after COVID, people were more productive than before. We've always been a remote company, so that wasn't a change. So it's logical that people can deal with that. But it's strange that if people now have to take care of their kids because the schools were closed and still overall productivity was up. Maybe not for all the people with kids at home, but overall, because there were fewer distractions, people just started working more. And we wanted to make a statement at the company level, like, although we appreciate everyone contributing, like, this is kind of weird. We want people to take time off. That's why we said, okay, the first uh, Friday of the quarter well, have a no work uh, day if you can, if your function allows it. We're not going to have any meetings and we're going to work on other stuff. And uh, it wasn't so much about that day. It's about the message we send. Like, hey, it's we recognize that everyone is working hard and people should allow themselves some time off because it's uh, it's intense. And if you've worked remote before, you know, you're more productive per hour and you should use some of that productivity to work fewer
0: hours. Yeah, to quote you from the article, one thing you said was overworking or maintaining the status quo during a crisis is not a badge of honor. In fact, I would be more proud if employees were taking time off to reset and refresh or spend time adjusting to this new normal with their families. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I don't know many IPO companies that are companies that are on that trajectory. I don't know. Maybe companies are changing. I don't know, but, this to me doesn't seem like like a public company kind of thing. It just seems, I don't know, like you're going to be the opposite of what IPO companies do out there, public companies do out there, because not everybody is saying that kind of thing, Sid.
1: Yeah, you get what you measure. And I've always found it strange that companies measure hours put in and hours worked and and hours behind the desk and and kind of celebrate that internally. Mm -hmm. So... For example, at GitLab, you're not allowed to praise someone publicly for working outside of office hours for that person, Uh, or working hours, I should say, without offices, and that's a very conscious decision. We want to celebrate results. We're a very driven company. Um, People work very hard, but we we make it about working hard and achieving results, not about working long, and uh, many times... People should be a good steward of their their time and uh, um, make sure that they make the hours count. But we're not counting the hours because that's, that's not what we're about. Mm-hmm. We're about results, not input measures. And uh, that's what we want to articulate. And it's a lot of people, last year we tripled the size of our team and a lot of people come from companies where it's kind of, the competition is who can take the least time off. And we want the competition to be who can get their work done but take the most time off. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's what we're trying to do. But not very successfully because we've seen people working very long hours during this crisis. So it's it's a tough thing to to change and it's a tough thing to kind of have that focus on results and and sometimes people try to make up for it by working longer hours and sometimes it's even needed. So it's a complex subject, but I'm I'm proud of the way that we celebrate people taking time off.
0: It is a complex subject because I'm reading this book called Indistractable and it's so interesting because the story in there is about a woman who was dealing with a crisis in her life and she got addicted to this pedometer application. The problem wasn't the pedometer. The problem was the crisis in her life. And the thing she could control was her ability to do what the pedometer said, essentially, to earn the points and do the steps and be active and stuff like that. So her her opportunity for control in her life, in this story, in this book, was the fact that she can control listening to the pedometer and doing what it said, and that was her, her lever of control. And it is complex because if you take someone's... Ability to control their work, maybe the only control in a in a world like we're in right now, away from them. Well, then that can have ill effects as well.
1: Yeah, for sure. And and people just like the same thing. Like, what what am I going to do with all that spare time right. that I have since I can't go out? I just want to work. Well, I, I found a solution. It's called City Skylines, and this is super awesome computer game, and I'm having a lot of fun with it. Um, yeah. but it's it's hard and. The interesting thing is, why are games so much fun? And I think one, one attribute is that level of control. Another attribute is kind of, maybe call it transparency, but like you have a lot of insight how the mechanics work. The rules are very clearly defined.
0: There's boundaries.
1: You know how it works. It's understandable. Yeah. And it's an important lesson, like what people want at work is a sense of progress. That's the most important thing. But they also want to know kind of clearly like how it works, what the rules of the game are. And uh, and they want something where they, they have a high degree of control and a- autonomy to, to influence the results.
0: Yeah. Let's focus a bit on, uh, for this last part here, maybe some hypotheticals or actuals. We'll find out. But I'm curious... Given GitLab's future and what you know you're going to do, what are the things you're most afraid of and the things you're most excited about, about the future of GitLab?
1: I'm afraid of the company failing, and uh, we made a nice webpage about that. It's called, uh, if you Google GitLab biggest risks, you'll, you'll find that. I'm super excited about the, kind of the impact of the product and the community around it. We're making people more productive. Like with GitLab, you can get from having an idea to coding it and having it uh, used and getting feedback about it and getting people excited about it in a shorter amount of time. And that's one of the things that make games fun, like a very quick reward cycle, a very quick cycle time between doing something and seeing the result. And with GitLab, we're making that easier for developers, operators, and, and security people. And I think that's that's super fun, and I'm very proud that every month uh, more than 200 improvements in the product come not from our team members, but from the, from the wider community around GitLab.
0: Let's ask this uh, final question on the horizon. I call it my horizon question. What's on the nearby horizon that my, not many people are aware of? Not so much that it's... Brand new or unknown, but something that people are less aware of or not very aware of on the nearby horizon for for you, for the organization that you could share today.
1: Yeah. I think that what's super interesting is that it's clear now that a DevOps platform makes a ton of sense. And we've now seen our biggest competitor, GitHub, starting to ship more features and how that perception in the market changed a couple of years ago. Everyone assumed that all products would be connected to each other and you'd have product marketplaces. And now it's clear that the idea, Camille, an engineer at GitLab, coined a couple of years back, let's make it a single application, that that has won. And that's kind of gone silently and unnoticed. But uh, I think it's a, it's a really big development and it, it will greatly help people be, uh, be more effective.
0: Sid, so it's been fun talking to you. I love to go back into your history, into the early days of GitLab, and even yourself to to sort of grok where you came from. We didn't go too deep, but deep enough. Maybe one day we'll have a chance for a part two, but I really enjoyed learning a lot about you and a lot about the DNA of the business you're running and a little bit more of a clarity around why IPO versus private sale Still more questions for me, but we'll leave it there for now. Thanks, Sid. I appreciate your time.
1: Yeah, this is great and always up for a second round. Awesome.
0: We'll make sure we do it then. Thanks, Sid. Thank you. All right. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Founders Talk. If you enjoyed this show, do me a favor. Go on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, whatever you're using. Favorite it. Leave us a rating or a review. If you tweet, tweet a link to a friend. Also, thanks to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to Fastly.com to learn more. And we're able to move fast and fix things around here at like because of Rollbar. Check them out at robot.com and we're hosted on Leno Cloud servers at the slash changelog. Support this show. Music is by the one and only Breakmaster Cylinder. And if you want to hear more shows like this, subscribe to our master feed. It's awesome. Check it out at slash master or go into your podcast app and search for changelog master. You'll find it. Subscribe, get all of our shows in one single feed, as well as some extras that only hit the master feed. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you again soon.